Okay, um, welcome to episode number 18 of the Make It Stack podcast. Today I'm joined by Logan, also known as the Market Minute on Instagram. Logan is a college student based out in Texas who has a distinct passion for value investing where you carry out extensive due diligence and invest in individual stocks with strong company fundamentals. Logan is only 19 years old, but you really wouldn't have thought it. His understanding of accounting and finance in the context of stock analysis is super impressive and he has such a clear investment process for a young investor. So I'm Will Waterhouse and I'm on a mission to demystify the world of saving and investing for young people. As always, keep calm and ride the vol. And without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Okay, uh, Logan, uh, also known as the Market Minute, Welcome to the Make It Stack podcast. I'm glad that you, you've managed to take some time out of your uh, busy schedule and, and join us from, from Texas, I believe. Yeah, of course. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And yeah, I'm in Texas, a uh, college station, actually. So it's about two hours north of Houston. Two hours north of Houston. Well, I must say my, my geography knowledge in that part of the world isn't particularly great. Um, I'm currently uh, in London, which is uh, where I've been living now for the past two and a half years. But it's but it's awesome to to speak with a fellow investor on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, but um, yeah, um, great. It's great to have you on. Uh, I think to start with, it would be awesome if you could just talk a little bit about yourself and how you uh, forged your passion for investing. Because I, I always like to get people's stories on on here. So um, yeah, feel free to. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So to start off with, I'm an undergraduate at AM. So I'm, I'm kind of young still, but way back when, I think when I turned 13, my dad, you know, he really pushed personal finance and stuff. So he got me a book, you know, personal finance 101, had budgeting, you know, good debt, bad debt. And then it, you know, touched on investing, you know, throw some money in S&P 500, let it go. And like that, that kind of interested me at first, but, you know, obviously I went deeper. I, I got my first job. I was like, I was at a movie theater at a box office and I was like, this is not a lot of money. So, you know, I, I went on, um, uh, I learned to invest and I, I really love the portfolio management aspect of it, you know, and valuing companies to figure out almost like a game trying to, you know, beat the S and P 500 minimize your risk. I, that, that was all really interesting to me. So that's probably how it started out. Um, honestly, I'm probably still pretty early in my investment journey, you know, being a student still, but, yeah, I'm excited to see where it takes me for sure. That's awesome. So uh, did you say you're in your early 20s at the moment? How old are you? I'm actually uh, 19, 19. So I'm, I'm pretty young, yeah. Oh, uh, wow. Well, well, you're certainly very early to the game. Um, yeah. I myself uh, didn't get into investing until I was 21. So okay, uh, gotcha. you've, got, you've, got, you've got an extra couple of years <laughs> to, to compound those returns. Um, just something that you mentioned before, um, I think you were super fortunate to have uh, a parent uh, that was kind of switched on in this personal finance sphere because I feel like a lot of people at the moment aren't really in touch with anyone close by that, that can really sort of show them the ropes. And um, f- where I'm coming from, I was um, I didn't really get into personal finance until I got my first job out of uni. So you were you were very lucky in in uh, yeah having your dad. So so so. Um, is he from a finance background or, or 
Whereas he yeah, really, he's better. actually from an engineering background, but I, I guess, you know, he was just fortunate enough um, to, to learn about it somewhere along the way. I'm not exactly sure where he learned about it, but yeah, um, he's, he's actually an engineer. Yes. Yeah, so I really don't know where he got that finance background from, but um, yeah. I'm glad he had it. Uh, yeah. Awesome. And so, um, so he's winding, winding the clocks back. So um, what was kind of your, what was the sort of tipping point that sort of caused you to actually put money in the market? Okay. And, and what did you actually decide to invest in first, first, first of all? Yeah. So before I turned 18, actually, I was doing some simulators, I guess. And I'm, I'm glad I did that because I invested in some pretty horrible companies on there. I was getting to some speculative stuff. Um, even when I first opened a brokerage, uh, it wasn't great. I, I'll be honest, I traded some options, but I'm, I'm glad I did that right off the bat. So I kind of learned very quickly that you, it's very, very difficult to make money out of that. Um, and then I got into index investing, you know, which is a really great way to just learn um, and still make returns. And then with that, I started to get into value investing, actually learning how to value companies and portfolio management, create a diversified portfolio with just, you know, maybe 10 different companies. Um, so right now, I'm in a combination of different mega caps. I've got a couple of different mega caps, a couple of different medium caps, different industries. Um, so yeah, uh, it, it's definitely been a learning experience already over the last couple yeah. of years. But I've definitely started to, you know, learn learn a lot more and invest much smarter. Yeah, yeah. and so when you decided to do the options trading, uh, how, how did that play out for you? And, and no, cause like in a sort of semi serious note, I think everybody has come across options and, and some, some of the listeners may know more than others, but would you be able to just sort of provide a bit of a breakdown as to what that involved for you and, and what the sort of key lessons learned were from that experience? Because I've dabbled in sort of, um, leveraged, uh, sort of cfd forex which went absolutely oh boy. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i i uh i think i sort of cut my losses at around five percent of of my capital um mm-hmm. but i mean yeah small, small amounts of money really but but yeah um just just give us give the listeners a an overview as to how that went for you okay gotcha yeah so, so first off you know you, you see on social media everywhere you know buy options that leverage you make a ton of money obviously that's not true but I, I started off just buying calls just buying straight up calls you know time is eating away at those i think i, I bought one at a company called desktop metal so not only did that from from when i bought that uh, it, it was actually a spac um it's down about 50 percent now not to mention that it just yeah it, i lost all of my money on that one obviously it was about probably five percent ten percent of my portfolio it wasn't the end of the day. Um, so that didn't work. Then I was like, okay, I just tried credit spreads, debit spreads, you know, um, a little bit smarter. Uh, that, that still didn't work. Yeah. So yeah, so it's at the end of the day, it's, you, you can't get rich quick. I mean, some people do because they're lucky, but I would just focus on actually investing in good solid companies for the long term and try not to get caught up into the day-to-day trading leverage, too much leverage positions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so after your brief sort of stint in, in options, so was the next stepping stone for you having a more of a passive approach and, and buying, buying certain index funds? And if so, do you want to give an overview as to how you went about, about doing that and which indexes you, you sort of followed? Yeah. So 
after I lost a lot of money there, I was like, okay, I just need to learn first, right? Yeah. Uh, I know I can buy individual companies later, but first let me just throw it in the index fund and learn. So I, I didn't really complicate it too much. I actually just threw it in the S&P, I threw it in the SPY. I think that was really the only index fund I put it into. Um, yeah, so then during that time, I a lot of self-teaching, I learned a little bit from uh, the investment club here at the school, a lot of self-teaching, just you know what makes a good company, how to value a company. And it, it was kind of hard at the time because there's a lot of speculation right now. People tell you this is a good stock, then you see it has a 200 PE or something like that. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, just actually learning how to value those has been a really good experience. And it, it makes yeah. you very confident when you invest and in actually knowing what you're doing is, is, is pretty nice. Yeah, I think that um, for, for most investors, there is this narrative where you tend to go into an area which has a lot of hype. So for example, options and chasing those sexy stocks basically you know like the teslas of the world and do you do you think it's fair to say that at some point there is a there's a moment where you're actually like okay let's be a bit more smart here and and actually go back to basics and have more of a value approach because this is something that i've started to, to get to grips with myself over the past 12 months i'd say in that ultimately what you want to treat a stock like a piece of a business and you know concepts such as discounted cash flow models and other tools actually make a lot of intuitive sense and and um certainly reading warren buffett and charlie munger has, has certainly sort of firmed up that philosophy for me do you have a, a similar sort of take on things yeah uh, absolutely so to start off i think a lot of people don't realize that until you know their positions go down 30 40 percent so i think a lot of people who realize that before they you know their teslas their DraftKings, or whatever lose all that value if they can get out of those beforehand and realize that earlier the luckier they are but yeah, I would say out of, I think I have about 10 different individual holdings. I've done a DCF for almost all of them at this point, except for uh, my financials, because you can't, I don't think you can do a DCF for banks. Um, but yeah, I've, I've actually read a Warren Buffett book, Peter Lynch. I love Peter Lynch. Yeah. Oh yeah. But just, just learning the fundamentals of actual value investing will help so much because you see a lot of people today just losing a lot of money in a lot of different tech companies especially as we see the switch from growth to value right oh, now. Yeah. And I think we'll continue to see that over the next couple months. Yeah, it's, it's been quite depressing, actually, because I, I do hold some sort of legacy growth stocks that, in all honesty, I haven't actually had the, the, the sort of the, the conviction to just sort of cut my losses, really. Um, so I'm, I'm currently holding uh, Beyond Meat, and I'm holding... Oh <laughs> yeah, I sold Tesla, though, which was a much larger position. I sold it around $1150. Um, which was good. I, I, I crystallized a pretty hefty profit. I think, I think I 17 times my money, but oh, it just, wow. yeah, I know it's over, over about three year, three year period. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I just, I just feel like, as you said, there's been a big switch from growth to value over the last sort of six to 12 months. And that is, that has been very painful for, for some of the stocks that I hold. Um, yeah. I know, I know from kind of communications on Instagram and things that you aren't like a hardcore value investment that you do like the idea of, of having growth plays. Do you have any kind of, what's your philosophy on, on value and growth? Cause I do feel like it makes sense to, to at least some extent diversify across factors. Um, what, yeah. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. So I would say at the end of the day, it's really just about getting the right combination of value and growth. So, you know, valuation relative to their growth. Um, so two growth companies that I actually love right now are Meta, so Facebook and Alibaba. 
and, and they're growing very quickly. They're growing at like, you know, 18, 20%, but it's their value. It's their valuation relative to that growth that makes them attractive. On the other hand, you have, I was looking at eBay the other day. They're trading at like a three PE ratio. I would never touch eBay. They're, they're not growing. They're losing users. It's, it's not good. So I would say it's all about that growth relative to the valuation. Yeah. I mean, I've actually got your Instagram, uh, account at right now and i saw that i think in your third most recent post you, you you did you mentioned something about ebay being a value trap do you want to just provide a little bit more of an um of a sort of detailed breakdown as to what your investment thesis is on ebay because yeah a, a three piece yeah, on the face it looks pretty cheap but again um yeah there's that there's that famous saying which is you know never catch a falling knife and that cheap valuations aren't necessarily indicative of, of high returns yeah, exactly. So that three PE that three PE ratio as well. It's actually really weird. They just had a sale of a discontinued business for like twelve billion dollars. So if you take that away, they're really trading at like a twenty PE ratio, and they're actually only growing at like three percent. So a three percent growth for a twenty PE ratio is not worth it. Um, adding to that, they're actually losing uh, subscribers and users. The only reason that they're keeping up, like or maintaining growth, is that they're raising their the fees that they charge for each transaction. And on top of that, if, I mean, if you just go to their website, they haven't changed for the last 10 years. They're not innovating. Mm. Um, I would imagine their market share is being taken up by Facebook Marketplace, Etsy, Depop, and I mean, even Amazon, really. So, yeah, I mean, they're a dying business. That, 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 that 3 PE ratio is very deceiving, but it's actually much higher once you take away that um, sale of their business. So I would, I would definitely make sure to stay away from that one. I would say that one's a, a pretty strong value trap. Okay. So with the sale of discontinued operations, I think you mentioned, is that, mm -hmm. are you basically saying that that's going to artificially inflate earnings, which are reported and therefore have make it look better than it is? Yeah, exactly. So I think they're, let me, let me actually pull it up real quick. Yeah. So their, their net income, if you don't take a, that sale was about 2 billion, I think, but then they sold that business for about 10 billion. So it shows their net income is yeah, 12 billion, but it's really only like 2 billion. So that, that those earnings are inflating their PE, which aren't really there. Mm. Um, and, and you'll see that drop in the next couple quarters once that goes away. I see. Great. Um, just to uh, sort of take a step back, um, I know you mentioned that uh, discounted cash flow modeling is kind of integral to your um, investment process in terms of deciding whether a stock is, is, is worth it or not just just for the listeners would it would be great if you could just explain what that is in a bit more detail and and what you look for because i i guess not all discounted cash flow models are strictly speaking the same so it'd be really good mm -hmm. if you could talk about that yeah so for my discounted cash flow what you're doing basically is your my, my discounted cash flows go for five years so I, I project the next five years and what you do is you project the revenue you project their EBITDA and ebit margins and so you're basically saying, this is how much they're going to grow by. This is what their margin is going to be for the next five years. And you take into account, I won't get into it too much, but working capital and CapEx, then you create their uh, free cash flows for the next five years. And then theoretically, the time value of money, you know, says $1 now is worth more than $1 next year or five years. So then you discount those cash flows, you add them up, and then you create a price for the company, basically. Um, so... Some of the most important things is, okay, and one thing to mention is you also have to have an exit multiple. There are two ways to do a DCF. You either do an exit multiple or um, perpetual growth. Mm. I use a exit multiple and I do that with a comparable analysis. So I look at 
okay, these are what all these other companies are trading at. So theoretically, this is like uh, the X multiple meaning like a PE, but I use EV to a bit, the, um, you know, so that's like the multiple it should be trading at. I would say the most important things in a DCF are, I mean, really it, it's their growth. And even though I am a value investor, you, you have to see that growth. Um, margin increases are really nice. And then uh, a couple other things. Yeah, they, they can't be diluting shares. Those, those shares have to be the same. A lot, a lot of times right now you see high-tech companies and early startups, they're diluting shares. You don't want that. Um, and then, yeah, the, the exit multiple is really important. So theoretically, you want their current valuation to be lower than what they should be trading at. Right. And also, in, in terms of the, the, the discount rate, and which reflects the sort of time value of money, um, I've heard some people kind of use... Um, kind of the historical S and P returns for that, plus an, an extra couple of percent for prudence. What what sort of discount rate do you apply to your modeling? Yeah, so I, I usually do actually model it with um, the capital asset pricing model. It gets a little bit complicated, but usually it, it does just come out to around ten percent. Uh, it also depends on their uh, capital structure, you know, how much debt they have, how much equity, because debt debt is cheaper to hold than equity. Uh, so it really depends on that, but I would say it's usually around ten percent. 10%. Great. I know, uh, I know we talked a little bit uh, before the podcast, but uh, I know you have a, a, a podcast yourself, which, which is basically it's to, to an extent pitching stocks. Is there any kind of particular holding that you've recently gone into or, or are looking to open a position in? And it'd be, it'd be great if you could just talk about, you know, your, yeah, your investment thesis on that. Yeah, sure. So my most recent uh, holding would be Ally Financial. Um, they're a digital bank, so there's no actual in-person uh, brick and mortar locations. Um, and instead, from a macro perspective, I'm trying to get into financials right now. Uh, bank earnings on Friday weren't actually that good. But you know, with, with rising interest rates, I think it's a good industry to be in. Historically, financials have performed the best over periods of rising rates. So that just that's just kind of opening up it. So really, I would hold any bank. Um, but then looking at it, one of the ways to value banks is their price to book ratio. Uh, Ally has a 1.2 price to book. Theoretically, I would like to see it below one, but it's fairly close. And a lot of other banks right now are trading as high as two or three. Uh, so it's not bad. Uh, they also just acquired a credit card company. Um, I think I forgot their name, but they're, they're, that company has been growing at around a 50% growth rate over the last couple of years. So I think it should fuel their growth pretty well a lot faster than, you know, more traditional banks. And uh, I, I think the digital bank, I think more people are going to start moving to those as well. I, I think traditional banks will probably start to lose some of their consumers. Uh, yeah, so that's that just the overall thesis for that one. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the, the same case in the UK. Uh, you know, like high street banks are notoriously archaic in terms of how difficult it is to actually get stuff done. And, um, you know, there's companies like Monzo, I'm not sure if they're in the US, but, um, you know, Monzo and other sort of fintech companies are, are increasing their popularity so much. So I think from a kind of high level, this is where the world's going point of view. I feel like Ally Financial could be a good play. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of large banks are probably going to, yeah, probably going to struggle over, over the next coming years if they're not going to innovate. 
Yeah, I would agree, especially the consumer sides, because I mean, working with banks as a consumer is just a, it's a horrible, archaic process there. It's very behind, I would say, compared to the rest of the industries. Financials have always mm-hmm. lagged behind. It seems like they haven't changed in a very long time. And so um, Ally Financial, did you say you've opened a position there or are you yet to go in? Yeah, I did. I opened it last week. It, it, it's pretty small portion of my portfolio at this point. I'll probably continue to do a little bit more due diligence. Uh, right now, they're sitting at like 5%. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty small allocation so far. Okay. And uh, I actually got it the day before they announced uh, increased dividend and buyback. So oh, got, tasty. Got, got pretty good timing <laughs> on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's nice. That's nice. That. So it looks to me like at the moment you hold around 10 stocks. Is that correct? Yeah. Let me, let me double check. Yeah. I actually hold a uh, agricultural commodity ETF as well. That's just a very small inflation. Interesting. Hedge. Yeah. Inflation hedge. Yeah. Oh, what, what about Bitcoin? Everyone keeps talking about that being an inflation hedge. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah. I don't know. Did you own any crypto? Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've got kind of a around a two 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 and a half percent allocation to crypto. Um, okay. Within that within that two and a half percent is is eighty percent Ethereum, twenty percent Bitcoin. Um, and I, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but essentially, I feel like the uh, the extent of the applications of Ethereum are a lot larger than for Bitcoin because Ether powers decentralized applications, which mm-hmm. which could theoretically be for anything that has sort of blockchain as a kind of central framework for example like electronic voting which i thought was quite a cool idea so um yeah i need to do more due diligence before i add any more money into into crypto um but i'm happy with 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 the two and a half percent allocation i think that's gone down slightly uh, over the past past few months because uh crypt's had a rough time but i, I think it's just part of the course i think volatility is always going to be there for, for for crypto um but um but yeah uh, so okay so you've got a you've got an agricultural etf that that's that's really cool yeah, I'm not really expecting a lot of returns there, but uh, if fertilizer prices are actually really high right now, then usually the agricultural uh, products follow. I think there was also, I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a commodities expert, but I, I figured it'll be a nice little hedge. What, what sort of other exposure do you have in that ETF? Do you, I mean, I assume there's things like the price of oil and, you know, timber, things like that. That one is actually just agriculture. So it's literally like okay. corn, cattle, coffee beans, soy. Um, I'll, I'll honestly right. probably get like a full commodities ETF with, you know, metals, lumber, maybe even a little bit of gold, just as a very small occasion, you know, two, 3%, just, just to see how it goes, learning experience as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So is that the, just looking at the, the portfolio analysis, is that the Chesape- Chesapeake energy or is that something different? No, so that's actually, okay. that, that's a different portfolio. That's not mine. That's a, I posted a couple different like investing uh, professionals portfolios. So my portfolio is, was posted on December 30th. All right. I see. Okay. Oh yeah. You, you've got that on the top of your, um, page. I can see that. Yeah. Oh, great. And so, yeah, you, uh, it looks like you've got a fairly sizable allocation to meta as well. I think you did a podcast talking about that in more detail. So I'm assuming that's got a fairly good outlook. Would you say? Yeah, so that, that that was my first podcast episode. Uh, they're yeah, they're they're. I would definitely say they're fundamentally undervalued. Um, you know, a growth relative to valuation type thing, and it, it does, has nothing to do with the metaverse. To be honest, really, the metaverse is just like an added bonus. Um, 
Yeah, no, I would say their valuation is low just because, you know, people don't like Zuckerberg. They've had their controversies. Mm. So they, that, that's why it's a, probably a low valuation, which also makes it, I think, a good time to get in. Yeah, what I quite liked about Meta is that it's a fairly simple business in the sense, I think something like 95% of revenue comes from advertising. And that's yeah. a really kind of intuitive, it's easy to get your head around as an investor. And I know, I know that's something that Peter Lynch has talked a lot about uh, in his writings on one upon wall street for example where you know you should only really buy a stock that you can understand the business model and if facebook generates most of its revenue or nearly all of its revenue from advertising and you know that 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 makes a lot of sense yeah exactly it's that's exactly why i love the one up on wall street is actually one of my uh, my favorite investing books but yeah it's yeah invest what you know it makes it easier to have conviction on it which makes you know you're not going to sell when it's down so you actually understand the business. And I would say, yeah, Facebook is one of the easier, or Meta is one of the easier ones to understand for sure. Yeah, yeah. And um, so obviously being a kind of value investor predominantly, and you need a lot of high quality data to back up your research, uh, financial data that is. Um, is there any particular website or app that you use to get data? Because, you know, I mean, I guess some people would say that if you're on like Yahoo Finance, for example, or, or other stuff, you might get data quality issues. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about what you're doing in that respect? Yeah, absolutely. So I am lucky enough that through uh, my university, I get Cap IQ. So that's from S&P. So they, they have basically all of the data you need. Unfortunately, it's not free. So if I didn't have it through the school, I wouldn't have it. Um, but I am lucky enough to have that. If if I weren't to have that, I'm not entirely sure what free ones I would use. That there does come that problem, you know, where you know Market Watch. I think I like Market Watch better than Yahoo Finance. Um, I think Trading View might not be horrible out of uh, free free ones. But yeah, luckily enough, I have uh, Cap IQ, which has it has you know all their historical data, analyst estimates. For the future, that that's actually how I might do my DCS because they have analyst uh, growth for the future as well. Yeah, and so with analyst growth expectations, do you sort of haircut those estimates when you're doing your DCFs as a sort of margin of safety? Yeah, I, I usually do. So not too much because I, I generally actually like their their revenue growth and their their margins. But what I always find interesting is how when I plug in that their revenue and margin growth, how different it is from their actual price growth. Uh, from their from their price estimates, so you know the, my my DCF will give me a two hundred share price using their estimates, and then they'll say it's at three hundred. It, it always seems like their uh, their share price estimates are always highly inflated. So yeah, I'll, I'll, mm. I'll generally try to do a little bit of a margin of safety there. Yeah, do you feel like there's a conflict of interest then with the like the sell side analysts that are carrying this out? Yeah, yeah, it, it always seems like that. I mean, that, that's why like ninety percent of you know, stocks you see out there, they have a buy rating for, and it's like, really? Should, should, it, should it really be like that? Yeah, if 90% of stocks have a buy rating, you may as well just, yeah, go for a passive approach or something. <laughs> I, don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I just made up that step. That's always what it's oh, right, like. I see. Every single yeah. one you go out there, there seems to be like a buy rating. Very rarely will you actually ever see a sell rating from an analyst. Yeah. And so a lot of people... Uh, sort of in the personal finance sphere, you know, do preach the benefits of of having a passive approach. Obviously, this sort of goes against your philosophy. Do you ever feel like 
what you're doing is worthwhile given that most professional fund managers don't outperform the the market over the long run i mean surely that plays uh plays in your mind a little bit yeah absolutely and that's a very good question because you know on you know on instagram or whatever you see people just buy the s p 500 dollar cost average don't touch it and i mean it, it's definitely a good idea i think for a lot of investors if you don't have the time to do your due diligence on individual stocks don't buy them don't don't waste your time buying stocks you don't know anything about just just buy a you know maybe even buy a couple different indexes i would say for me i it's a combination of a learning experience because i actually do i think want to go into investment banking or venture capital down the road uh, so it, it's a huge learning experience for me and, and and from the different philosophies from you know peter lynch howard marks warren buffett i do believe that over time using a value investing approach you can in fact beat the market i think maybe what three hedge funds beat the market last year yeah but i saw that that, that is also because they are managing risk in some way even though they should probably be trying to beat the market but yeah at the end of the day they're managing risk so they're you know they're not doing warren buffett or you know, value investing approaches but but i would say that yeah i mean it, it's yeah. definitely possible but it's it, it's yeah. a, it's definitely a thing to think about I, I feel like this might sound quite controversial but i feel like hedge funds to some extent have a bit of a bit of a bad rep because you know it's like oh only three out of 50 um outperform the s p but it's like yeah but some hedge funds are looking to like minimize volatility and so like from a risk-adjusted return perspective they might actually be quite attractive so like yeah it's, it's horse, i 100 percent agree yeah horse the courses isn't it really um yeah yeah at the end of the day they're, they're there to manage risk they're not necessarily trying to beat the s that, that that's not their goal yeah and a lot of them use the same like not rules-based investing in some way so that, you know they're going to underperform some years and overperform others they're just how it goes yeah so I think for me, I, I, I sort of work at the moment full time. So I, I think my ability to do sort of deep due diligence is, is somewhat hindered. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I'm having a bit more of a passive approach at the moment. So um, I think at the moment I, I'm putting, yeah, most of my money into an MSCI world ETF, okay. which is a pretty sort of low, low cost uh, option to provide. Yeah, basically, basically exposure to, to the developed world. Um, so that, that's my plan. And I think, um, when probably around 50 to 75% of my portfolio is in that ETF, I'll look to do more in-depth due diligence on, on, on a sort of value play. That's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking. Cause I don't, I don't own any value stocks at the moment, but the more I read about it, the more, <laughs> the more compelled yeah. I become. <laughs> is there a reason why you went with the, the world index rather than like a US or Europe index? Um, so the, so I feel like it's not a bad decision to diversify across geographies. And I know the U S has had a, a very good 10 year return. It's, you know, it shot the lights out basically. Um, I think that it just makes sense to just have more geographical exposures. So the MSCI world is, uh, I think it's U S and Canada and Europe. So like the UK and France and Germany, other countries like that, maybe a bit of Australia. Um, okay. and then, and then, Potentially, I'll look to have a, an emerging market ETF as well with maybe a 5 to 10% allocation to. Um, yes, the US has done super well over the last 10 years, but you know, who's to say it, it'll do that again? And I'm, not, I, and I'm, I'm not in a position to make that call. Yeah. I don't, think, any, <laughs> no, I don't think anyone is really. So I think, yeah. I think from a passive approach, I think 
the, uh, the more geographical exposure you can get, the better. But you just need to weigh that up against costs. I mean, like a Vanguard ETF uh, for the S&P, for example, is just, you know, it's a couple of bips or something at uh, yeah. annual management charges, which, which makes sense. So, yeah, you've got to weigh that up against, against the fee efficiency. So That's a good point. Yeah, speaking on that, actually, I know it's a little bit controversial, but uh, China's, you know, investments in China right now, their valuation valuations look very attractive relative to U.S. valuations. Um, yeah, so, you know, there's the delisting and regulation controversies, but that's not a bad place for a value investor to look at right now, I would say. Yeah, I know. Um, so I know you you have Alibaba, don't you, at the moment? Yeah. Yeah, so there's other people in the personal finance sphere uh, on social media that I follow and they're, they're very bullish on Alibaba as well. Wes. Uh, Wes. Yeah, yeah. Wes. Yeah. Yeah. Big shout out, bro. If you're listening. Um, <laughs> and I also heard that um, Charlie Munger, uh, the legendary investor at Berkshire has um, recently allocated to, to Alibaba. Um, I guess it is, is a tricky one because from a fundamental standpoint, they do look great. Mm-hmm. But it's very, it'd be very difficult for me to really understand the, the extent to which the Chinese Communist Party has over firms out there because, you know, like they made Jack Ma disappear for a bit and, and things like that. Like, yeah. doesn't, that, doesn't that concern you um, when you are investing in China in, in, in direct stocks? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it absolutely does, which is why I only have, what does that say? I have an 11% allocation in Alibaba, which is all of my exposure to China. And, and obviously, you know, the, de- de- the delisting and regulatory risk is there. I mean, you can see that in the valuation. A lot of people are worried about it. That is why the valuation is so low. My, my stance at the end of the day is fundamentally, it, it, it's a good company to invest in. Uh, the, the financials, the fundamentals are there. And I you know, and, and the, the extent of the risk is kind of hard to understand, but I, I don't believe that Alibaba will be forced to delist at the end of the day. So, I mean, yeah, there is some risk there, but I, I would rather take that risk than investing in like an overvalued U.S. tech stock. So th- there's definitely risk there. Yeah. yeah, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I feel like it's not in China's best interest to stifle the growth of these Chinese mega caps because they're going to be driving economic growth in that particular region. And to yeah to, to to sort of delist stuff and to make make it more difficult for for sort of foreign investment into China, I I just don't think that's smart. I know I know I don't know too much about it, but but from a sort of high level uh, no, exactly. sort of analysis, it yeah it makes it makes a lot of sense. So um, yeah, and the only reason why DD delisted is they uh, so DD is being forced to delist at like the ride hailing service in China. Uh, the only reason why they are having to delist is because China told them before they listed, don't do it. You know you have. I don't remember exactly why, but China didn't want them to list yet. And they listed anyway, which is why they're having to delist, which, you know, caused a lot more panic when they were told not to. So I don't think that'll happen to a lot of the other companies. Yeah. And um, so I know you said you're only 19, which is very young. So you you may not have uh, managed to come across this, but with anyone who is a value investor, there will come a point where you're probably going to make the wrong call. Um, would you, I'm not sure if you have any examples, but would you want to sort of talk through any mistakes that you've made throughout your investing career and talk about what went wrong and, and actually the, the deci- how you ended up making the decision to perhaps sell out of the position? Because some people think, oh, okay, the stock's gone down 20%, 30%, 40%. Let's double mm-hmm. down, let's double down. And I know people are big advocates of, of averaging down. So 
the lower it goes, almost the better because you can reduce your average price. Do you have any examples there you want to you want to talk about? Yeah, so I would say my biggest mistakes came early on. They weren't necessarily with value stocks. That the biggest mistakes that I've made is when I got really excited about a company, gave up on the due diligence, and then just bought it. And then you know I I didn't I didn't know all the information, so it went down, and I was like, I, I why is this company going down? I don't actually know the fundamentals because I got excited about them and I bought it without the full due diligence. I actually did that with a uh, SoFi a while back. Um, and I, I, I actually got like a 30% gain on it, luckily, but I just sold it without knowing I didn't do enough due diligence to get in and I didn't do enough due diligence getting out. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's where the biggest mistakes come from is just to not do the full due diligence and just buy a company without knowing, uh, doing some more due diligence. I wouldn't buy SoFi again. I, I don't like their valuation. Um, but yeah, I think for me, and I think for most investors, the biggest mistakes come from, when you don't do your due, due you don't do your due diligence and you just it goes down and you panic sell because you don't have the conviction at dollar cost average down i completely agree i mean i think you actually saw this post and commented but there's there's this sort of flow chart that i did which is basically the fact that if you are willing to do the due diligence that leads to conviction yeah. in your thesis which means you're more patient if the stock price doesn't go in the direction you want it to go, which ultimately leads to a good investment outcome. And so, yeah, I think a lot of people stumble at the first hurdle, which is, oh, I, I can't be bothered to, to really have a look under the bonnet here or under the hood, as you, as you Americans would say. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah, that, 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 that po I love that post. That, that summed it up really well. And I've, that, that's probably one of the biggest mistakes I've made over my uh, couple years investing. And it, it's a mistake that I hope to not make again, because that's, that's a killer. Yeah. And so do you, do you try and be objective with risk? So, you know, if, if the stock price did go below a certain price, would that impact your decision to, would that result in a call to action to buy or sell? Or are you kind of a bit more um, sort of qualitative in that you're more, you're more interested in, in the story and what the sort of financial statements are telling you? Yeah. So I think it was Peter Lynch who said, I think actually a lot of people sell it, you know, let, let your winners run, sell your losses. Yeah. Um, so it, it's kind of that, but then there are also, I think Howard Marks, he says, you know, it, it's your duty as a value investor to catch a falling knife. Um, so it, it's really a combination between those two. Uh, so I, I, as long as the story doesn't change, I may not necessarily buy more. Uh, I was lucky enough to just buy Baba a couple of weeks ago. So I'm actually one of the few investors up on that position. But let's say I bought it a year ago and I'm down 30%. I don't think I would necessarily buy more in that particular case, but I would probably just wait for the price to come up, even though theoretically buying more would probably be the way to go. But especially when there's a lot of risk involved like that, you, you don't really know. Um, yeah, it, 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 that's really a hard one. There's so many different things. You can either you can sell it, you can let it fall, you can buy more. Um, I, I would generally just hold it as long as the story doesn't change, but that, that, that's a really hard one to talk about. Yeah, no, I completely, completely agree. <laughs> and I, th I think one of the great things about value investing is that because you look through the lens of what it is like as a, as a uh, private investor, i.e. look at the discounted cash flows, you know, our earnings going up, et cetera, et cetera. It just builds so much conviction and it just yeah. like nothing, like I'm going to, I'm going to sound like such a boomer here, but like, it just makes so much sense. Um, like I can't, I can't, I can't sort of emphasize that enough. So, um,
Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. And one of the things I actually do, uh, sometimes I'll throw, I'll do a stock screen on cap IQ. I can, you know, put in PE ratio growth, uh, return on equity and stuff. And I'll, I can just screen it that way. And what I'll try to do is I'll just look at the financials without even knowing what the company does. Cause I know a lot of times people will get like attached to a company and get conviction just through what they do. And then they'll look at the financials and they'll like justify, you know, low growth because the company is so cool. So that, yeah. that's what I try to do a lot. And I'd rather have a conviction on the financials than like the coolness of the company, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, confirmation bias yeah. is something yeah. that I'm very cognizant of, you know, like just because, so if for context, that is you'd like a business and therefore you, when you're doing your due diligence, you're going to be looking for information that reinforces that belief and that you kind of don't attach too much weight to stuff that goes against that. Do, you know, these unconscious biases are very important. And I think in order to, to, to be a master investor, you need to master yourself. Um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, no, that, that's extremely important. You know, I haven't mastered that yet. I, I think very few people have besides from Warren Buffett. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of like I said with the screener, why I like to look at the financials of the company before I actually know what the company does. Um, and a, a lot of times, you know, people will look at these high growth, super awesome companies. They'll be like, you know, take DraftKings, for example. Oh my God, DraftKings is amazing. You know, they're growing, legalization is happening. But then you look at the financials and you see they're, they're diluting shares, they're issuing debt, they're, they're dying. Mm -hmm. But if you were, if you love that, like gambling thesis so much, you would invest in them anyway. So yeah, no, that, that, that's super important not to get, let the confirmation bias get to you too much. Yeah, and so as a value investor, having a robust investment process is paramount. Um, yeah. Let's say you've got a portfolio, right? And you're like, mm -hmm. okay, I think I need to have an, another stock for you know, perhaps a bit of diversification, whatever the reason is. Let's say there's 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 no holdings that you have on your watch list. Just just take me through step by step. How would you go about deciding to allocate to stock X? Yeah, so I'm actually doing this right now for energy, for the energy sector. But for the sake of simplicity, I'm not going to do the energy sector because it's a little bit more complicated. Um, so let's say I wanted a new healthcare company, which I actually do as well. There are a couple different ways. I, I would first, you know, I, I could ask around. You know, I'm lucky enough on Instagram. I know a lot of, you know, we know a lot of different good, you know, well-versed investors who we could ask about, see if they know any well-valued companies um, from that point, I would pull it up. I would pull up their income statement, their balance sheet, their cash flow, see if I like it, see if I like it relative to the valuation very quickly, just from the look at the income statement without knowing what they do. I'll be able to tell if I even want to look at this company anymore. Um, another way is I'll just do a stock screener. So I'll put, you know, I'll put healthcare return on equity over this percent, you know, revenue growth over this percent valuation lower than this. Then I'll look through those and then I'll probably get a couple different companies where I just like the financials. And then, you know, maybe I'll do a comparable analysis for them. And if I really, really like one, I'll do a DCF, then probably pull the trigger on that one. So it's, it's a, it's a big process. And I focus more on the financials and fundamentals rather than even like what the company does themselves. Mm. And so how long does that process take? Would you say, is that, is that a couple of weeks or months? Yeah, I would say it's generally a couple of weeks. Um, it, it, it takes some time. Um, definitely, 
I would say, I mean, even a DCF it say, itself takes me, you know, an hour to run sometimes. So yeah, it, it's definitely a couple week process just to look over all the uh, different competitors, just to really know that you're getting the best one. Yeah. It, Cause it, it's important to like understand the space a little bit as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, investors like Warren Buffett always talk about the importance of asking really tough questions to CEOs. I know we might, we might not have that sort of luxury yeah. in our position, but like really getting an understanding as to like which competitors they're, they're worried about and why mm-hmm. and sort of getting that sort of industry dynamics really, really nailed down. Um, but again, yeah, it, it's just due diligence as a, as a thing. It just requires a lot of, and internal energy and, and brain bandwidth to just get everything done. Yeah. So, like, no, no, no wonder it's such a difficult thing that no one does. It's because it's so, it's so taxing. Just like for, yeah, for, me, now, for, me, for me now, just thinking about uh, pulling a trigger on a stock, having done due diligence, like that's a big deal for me. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so, yeah. Uh, I, to be to be quite frank, at the moment, I'm I'm pleased that I'm just putting money into into the MSCI world. Um, you know, because yeah, it's the, doing due diligence is a mammoth task. Yeah, it is. It's it's a time-consuming process. I mean, it's a little bit stressful too, right? You're like, should I buy this? Should I buy something else? Should I wait? Should I not buy it at all? Should I buy an index fund? Mm. Uh, yeah. So there's, it's it, it's definitely something that not everyone wants to do. But if you are going to pick individual stocks, it's something that you need to do. And um, you owe, you owe it to yourself as well. I mean, the idea of uh, parting with your cash that's hard earned on some speculative security. It's just, you're just not doing yourself any favors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think for, for anyone that's listening to this, if you're not willing to do the hard work, don't invest in direct shares because there are, there are a lot of people out there, um, that, that, you know, intelligent people that don't have the inclination to do it and they get burned. You know, like, yeah. like doctors and like, you know, <laughs> medical professionals, yeah. you know, they, they, they sort of go into this stuff. They don't do the due diligence and then, and then they get burned. That's uh that's the Peter Lynch's book, right? You know, doctors invest in the oil field, oil <laughs> field professionals invest in the medical field. I literally, I literally said that in the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that's interesting how that goes. Um, yeah, no, if you, if you're picking individual stocks, you got to do your due diligence. Yeah. And so, um, what what what's next for you? Like, what's over the next sort of couple of years? How can you see your portfolio evolving? Um, and just as a sort of sub question to that, do you look at emerging themes and macroeconomic trends as part of your investment philosophy? Yeah, so I, I do a little bit, and obviously, I mean, even economists get it wrong, right? They they can't even accurately predict things. Yeah, but I, I would say, I would say right now. I would, the, the biggest theme is inflation and rising interest rates. Um, and I, I actually posted a portfolio of Howard Marks. And if you look at his portfolio, it's all energy, it's all financials, and it's all materials. I'm not going to take it like, you know, I'm not going to do all of that. But I, I definitely want some more exposure to those industries or sectors over the next year. Uh, that's why I added Ally Financial. I think I want to decrease some of my consumer discretionary. Uh, we saw retail sales. What was that on Friday? They were they missed horribly. Um, so I, I think consumer stocks are going to have a hard time over the next year, especially with inflation. Yeah. So just on that, why do you think that consumer discretionary is an unattractive sector? Because you could argue that a big a big head a big headwind to that sector has been 
the pandemic, COVID, you know, people aren't going out as much. Do you feel mm-hmm. like, do you feel like that, yeah, the outlook is, 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 is negative? And, and if so, could you flesh out that point? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so if I think there was this one chart, it shows uh, consumer income and consumer spending. And historically, that they've always been the same, right? They've always gone together. Then recently, with the COVID-19 stimulus, uh, spending jumped way above income. So there was a disconnect there, um, but, but by quite a bit, by a couple percent. And now it, it can't stay like that forever. At some point, that spending is going to have to drop down back to income. And I think we saw that on Friday. Uh, retail sales in the U.S. missed uh, projections by like 2%. So I think that's inflation. Consumers don't want to buy as much because stuff is getting expensive and because people have just been buying so much recently uh, with, you know, their stimulus and just, I don't know, they're, they're free again. They're going out. <laughs> um, yeah, so th- that's my thesis on consumers. I think I would rather have more like consumer staples, you know, not necessarily Walmart, but I, I own BJ's rather than something like, uh, you know, buying discretionary stuff, vacations, boats, yachts computer stuff like that yeah i, I guess like the, the standard consumer stuff is is pretty resilient to mm-hmm. any sort of you know macroeconomic shocks because at the end of the day people need to you know buy food and stuff don't they so yeah that exactly. kind of makes a lot of sense yeah so um <clears throat> just from talking to you so far on the podcast um you've mentioned howard marks uh, quite a few times um it'd be great if you could just provide a bit of a background as to how you came across him and just talk about him as an individual. Cause uh, I must say, I, I haven't actually read any books on Howard Marks. I, I'm mostly focused with Warren Buffett, Ben Graham and, and, uh, and Charlie Munger. Uh, yeah. It'd be awesome if you could just provide a, uh, yeah, a brief intro to, to Howard Marks for, for the listeners. Absolutely. So another shout out to Wes. Wes actually recommended Howard Marks to me. I didn't know who he was before I talked to him. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it, it was, I actually read a book on him about market cycles, about, you know, how it goes up and down, how it swings like a pendulum credit cycles. He went through like, you know, a little bit of market history, but his main investing thesis is to always stay invested, always stay fully invested in the market, but to like strongly tilt your portfolio according to market conditions. So right now, you know, he would say we're at, we're at the top of that, uh, pendulum so he's going to shift it to more defensive safe stocks and then when you're at the bottom you shift you know to more aggressive so that's really his thesis um who he is he's a uh, i think he's the co-founder or he's like a founding partner of oak tree capital management they're they're a huge money management firm they've got billions and billions of dollars under assets uh, but yeah that's a little bit about him i really love right. his investment thesis so one of my questions to follow up would be how on earth do we figure out where we are on the pendulum? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that that's something that you really can't even answer. I mean, that there are certain things. So, um, and it, it, like consumer sentiment, investor sentiment, right now, or at least you know, a couple months ago, super high. You know, people valuations are getting out of proportion. You know, valuations are insane in a lot of companies. So you can assume that you know we're a little bit on the higher end. Another one is credit availability in the credit markets. So interest rates have been super low for a very long time. Uh, so you can, you know, credit's readily available. So we're probably somewhere at the higher end. And now you can see interest rates are about to start rising. So, you know, we may start to shift down in that market cycle soon. That's, and, and the, his point is you can't exactly ever tell exactly where we are. 
which is why you don't want to ever take your money out completely. You don't want to take your money out when you think you're at the top because you could be wrong by a year, two years, three years. You just want to stay invested and maybe tilt it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I very much, uh, I'm, I'm in, in agreement with that. I mean, the idea of arbitrarily selling your investments because the price is just appear high, mm-hmm. um, or, or the S&Ps reaching all-time highs. I mean, it's, it is kind of ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's so important to, yeah, give, you, give, yourself the best, give yourself the best chance and to, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's so difficult to know when to, when to sell broad exposures to broad markets. Like the yeah. idea of selling the S&P, for example, I mean, and, it, and if people keep talking about reaching financial freedom, the re, that will be done through, share price appreciation. So you're going to be yeah. reaching all-time highs. People are going to be questioning whether the valuations are justified. It's just, yeah, it's just the game we're playing really. Um, yeah. So yeah, I com- completely agree there. It's, and I'm, I'm never going to be overweight cash. And if that is the case, it's because I'm, I'm, I'm definitely being negligent as, as an investor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, at the very least, like if, if you thought that the market was like the biggest crash of all time was coming at, like at the very least you could own you know some commodities or inflation protected bonds like there is no reason to just hold cash right now with seven percent inflation there's yeah there's there's no reason to hold cash yeah yeah cash cash is trash (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, agreed. I mean, um, I, I have a small allocation of cash just because I don't know what to do with it yet. But like, you know, that's that's not because. Yeah, yeah I'm kind of I'm kind of of the opinion that you should hold cash to cover sort of yeah emergency expenses. But yeah. anything oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and anything above that is is kind of a bit, a bit too much. I guess the only other complicated scenario is when you're looking to say fund a big purchase say for example buying a house and, and knowing when to oh yeah, yeah. De- de- de-risk the portfolio or go into cash in advance of that house purchase um so i'm not sure what the market's like in america in terms of property or i guess you you're being 19 you're probably not thinking about this but that, yeah deciding when to buy a house uh, and and de-risking the portfolio in advance of that is, is something that's that's uh, important yeah definitely i, I mean I, I don't know too much but i know the housing market is definitely a uh definitely on fire right now definitely yeah so the last couple actually, of years actually so just to digress slightly um so it's my understanding that there's been a big inflow of people into texas from california like has has places like austin yeah. like changed a lot over the last couple of years because i know i listen um, sorry sorry to name drop this but i do listen to the joe rogan podcast and he's moved to texas okay. and um I feel like a lot of a lot of uh, professionals are doing that. Do you want to just give a bit of bit of background on how Texas is evolving as, as a place? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I live like in northern Houston. I, I I don't live in Austin, but I can tell you right now, Austin is absolutely booming. They they they're like the next Silicon Valley, basically. I mean, you've seen what Tesla just moved here. Um, I think I think Facebook Meta may actually be moving part of their operations here. Um. From, from, from a personal experience, I haven't really noticed too much change. Um, I would definitely say, you know, I, I meet new people all the time and they're always moving from somewhere, you know. But yeah, I remember that came recently and Texas was, I think, one of the fastest growing states in the U.S. I would, yeah. Um, you, you don't really notice it too much just living here, but it, it's definitely there in some of the bigger cities. 
And what's driving that influx of people? That's a good question. I, I would say for the businesses, it would be the taxes. You know, it may actually be that we don't have a state income tax. So Texas has, so uh, there's, nice. <laughs> yeah, there's like eight states in the US that don't have a state income tax. We have sales tax instead. It's like an 8% sales tax. So, I mean, it ends up, you know, depending on how much you got and spend, it's about the same. But I think people like the idea of not having a state income tax. Yeah, I, I could get on board with that. Yeah. Um, like in, in, in the, so in the UK, um, the basic rate of, of income tax is 20% and then higher rate is 40%. Um, and then I th- I'm not sure the top one, if I, th- I think it's around 50%, um, uh, marginal right. income taxes. So yeah, a bit quite hefty. Um, yeah. I try not to look too close at my pay slips <laughs> since the difference between my yeah. gross and net income, but, but there we are. Um, so yeah, just, just sort of one final thing. So obviously, um, this conversation has been made possible through Instagram. Uh, it'd be awesome if you could just talk about the reason for you to set up your, your Instagram account and just talk about what you plan to do in the future on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so when I very first started, I was just, you know, doing all these research on companies. I was building up my portfolio. I was like, I should do something with this. I should share it. I should, you know, let people know what I'm doing. Uh, and that's why I initially started. And since then I've, I just started the podcast, you know, that was two weeks ago. I think I'll continue to build that, build the newsletter, um, just grow it. Yeah, so I think I think the podcast and the newsletter are going to be my big plans for the future over the next year. I hope to just continue do, growing it. I also do those, you know, those news things every day on Instagram. I'd love to just keep doing that, let people know what's going on in the market. But yeah, I've really enjoyed, you know, meeting people like you, meeting Wes, and just meeting a whole bunch of people who are interested in the same thing. Because I don't know about you, I don't know too many people in person who are so passionate and love investing. Mm. Uh, so it, it's been nice to meet a lot of different people through Instagram like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm obviously very passionate about investing to the, to the detriment of my close friends that aren't. <laughs> yeah. I, do, yeah, I do sort of, I do sort of bring it up uh, a, bit, a bit too much and they get annoyed at me. But it's good that we can all be really weird together on, on Instagram and, and talk, yeah, exactly. talk, talk about stuff, really get a good understanding of, of stuff and uh, really yeah, delve, delve deeper into really weird niche topics. So yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's awesome. Um, and so if, for anyone that, that, that's listening, you, you might want to get in contact uh, with Logan. Um, Logan, do you want to just uh, provide any sort of contact details uh, that, that people can reach you through? Yeah, sure. So uh, my Instagram is at uh, the underscore market underscore minute, or you can go on the website. Um, it's www.themarketminute.co. Uh, just reach out to me on either of those, and I'll be happy to you know talk about anything and. Hope, hope to see you guys there. Nice one. All right. Well, um, well, yeah, Logan, it's been, it's been absolutely awesome to talk to you and to hear about your investment philosophy. I must say at the age of 19, you have certainly got a, a large amount of knowledge and, and I'm sure you'll be very successful. Um, yeah, best of luck with the, the university studies and your future careers. Um, but yeah, um, everyone be, be sure to check out his, his channel. It's got some really good content on it. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Logan. And, um, yeah. yeah, enjoy, enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. That was, that was a super fun time. I hope to either come on again or have you on mine at some point. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, definitely. Okay, mate. Uh, have a great day. All Take right, care. Bye, well, I'll see you later. See you later. Bye-bye. Well done on making it to the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, 
please can you leave a comment if possible and leave a five star review this will really help the algorithm and also let me know which content really resonates with you uh, thank you very much just one final note uh, remember that the podcast should not be regarded as financial advice if you are unsure of making any investment decision please contact your financial advisor